I sat through nine innings of a game of every game when I was seven years old. She can yeah, too. Yeah, true. Me too. But these kids are soft. <laughs> Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is October 1st, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio, as always, by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hello, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How's it going? I am just so darn excited that it's October. <sighs> it's it's the, the month of baseball playoffs. The leaves are turning outside. It's the temperature's going season. down. Pumpkin spice. Well, no, technically that started in August. <laughs> right. But... We'll put that aside. The true pumpkin spice right. season starts right. now. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Champions will be crowned when it's pumpkin spice season. <laughs> and on the line from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing, Sarah? And Neil? How are you doing, Neil? Hi, Jeff. Have you had your pumpkin spice lattes yet? No, I'm not a fan. I, I'm not into it. I don't like the whole trend. Way to, too bad. <laughs> way to rain on our parade, Jeff. Right. Jeez. Sorry. Don't think it tastes good. Not that interested. Wow. Pass. Don't need it. Um, let's talk about sports today, you guys. Uh, we are in the thick of the WNBA Finals. The Washington Mystics won Game 1 against the Connecticut Sun. They play Game 2 tonight before they head back to Connecticut for Game 3 on Sunday. Uh, I've really been enjoying watching. It was also a super weird weekend in the NFL. Lots of weird scores, bad quarterback play. Maybe that's just from my specific team. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> you, you seem to have Kirk Cousins on the mind. Always. It's a real problem. Well, in fantasy football, we should uh, we should make our, our team updates. How did you all do? I won. I don't know. Did I did I lose? I haven't checked. You did lose. Did you play a kicker? Oh, I played a kicker. I lost, though. Well, it's baby steps. We also had a big trade yes, that in our fantasy football league this week. The highlight of the week, I It think. was. It was. Uh, I traded to Neil, Kirk Cousins. <laughs> I wonder why. Kenny Stills, <laughs> who, who immediately got, got hurt. hurt. Yeah. And, and who did I get back, Neil? You got Mitchell Trubisky, who promptly got hurt, <laughs> and uh, some receiver on Washington named Kyle Quinn. No. Trey? Trey Quinn. Trey Quinn. Trey Quinn. Big trade. <laughs> he was a really meaningful player yeah, for you. no, it was huge. This is but- a great trade where in most 99% of all leagues across the country, not one of these guys is owned. But because we have a 16-team league, and we're dipping down into the... The lower ranks. But the most important aspect of this trade to me was that Sarah uh, threw in a free lunch at Chipotle. That's true. Um, I did. I did. And they have carne asada right now. (laughs) So if you're listening to Chipotle, uh, you know, sponsorship uh, for our podcast would be great. But also that it makes a good um, a good inclusion in a trade to sort of uh, sweeten the deal. Yeah. Well, if I had known that Trubisky, who was the moderately better player between he was was the crown jewel of this trade yeah yeah. if i had known that he was going to immediately get hurt i would not have included lunch in that deal oh yeah no that's fair that's fair so really i clearly kenny stills got hurt i'm not complaining yeah you weren't what were the when were you gonna use this trade is just disgusting i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) this is it was it it was really just we shouldn't be talking about any of these players <laughs> there was no good reason to make this trade except that it was it was silly and the carne asada on today's show we will reflect on the 2019 mlb regular season we'll check in with college football to see what's changed since we first previewed the season and we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week 
MLB wildcard games kick off tonight with the Milwaukee Brewers taking on the Washington Nationals. On Wednesday night, we'll see the Oakland Athletics taking on the Tampa Bay Rays. Neil, how does our model predict these games? Well, on the National League side, uh, Washington is a pretty sizable favorite. We have them at 64% to beat the Brewers. Uh, We talked last week about how the Brewers had kind of had this amazing surge to end the season without their MVP candidate, Christian Yelich. As impressive as that is, if Washington does win this game, they would be leading that next tier below the three big favorites that we talked about last week, the Dodgers, Astros, and Yankees. So we think of them as like a very legit you know, title contender provided that they do win this play-in game. And then on the other side, the A's are a very slim favorite, 54% to beat the Tampa Bay Rays uh, in the American League. And neither of those teams are quite at the same level uh, by our rating as some of the top contending teams. But I think we we would consider the A's to be a threat, at least, if they if they make it through. Can I just say how much I hate the wildcard game? I hate it. It's antithetical to everything about baseball. Every time two teams go up against each other, there's a series. It's a three-game series. Four even. At least two. These one-game playoffs are terrible, and I hate them. Oh, come on. But think about all of the one-game playoffs that we've seen over the years that were super exciting. You know, well, the Game 163, <laughs> this just sort of Game 163 is like the one exception because it's an extension of the regular season. Oh, somehow that's more organic, I guess? Yes, because if you finish the regular season tied, okay, then you need one more game to figure it out. Yeah, but we know from the stats that differences of one, two, three... Even five plus wins are not meaningful in in uh, terms of telling us who the better team is. They're still roughly equivalent to each other, and so why would it if they just land on the same number, you you have a play in game? But if they're like one or two games apart, it's like oh well, this the game that the team that won two more games clearly the better team. Why don't they just play a full series? I don't understand hockey. Sixteen teams make the playoffs. They play a best of seven every round. It lasts three months. What is baseball's deal? They, they take their time. They play a million games all summer long, all spring long, and then they get to the fall and they start getting antsy and like, we got to rush. Play a full series. They seem like, you know, the clock will strike, strike at the end of October and <laughs> right. they can't play baseball anymore. Like, why not just play in November? I've agreed with you, Jeff. I think there should be an actual series for the wildcard games. I, I would think, even take that for the game 163, whatever it has to happen, and make these, it a series. These teams are lucky to be playing even one extra game at this point. If you look at all of baseball history, remember the time in which teams that won the league went straight to the World Series? You didn't have any of this division series or championship <laughs> series stuff uh, for the majority of baseball history. So they're lucky that they're even getting one game to be able to make it to the division series. Wow. I'm fine with that, too. Just having, like, two teams make the playoffs. I mean, uh, two teams in each league. I liked it, the old championship series, then World Series, and we're done. So you think it should be, what, Yankees, Astros, and the AL right now for the World Series? Dodgers, I don't know, Braves? Yeah, I'm fine with that. That's enough. We've seen enough baseball. Let's finish this up. I feel, wait, what? <laughs> you were just arguing I'm that joking. it should I be the opposite point. <laughs> <laughs> I meant me personally. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, I think we solved that one, guys. <laughs> I guess I guess my point is I I agree with you, Sarah, that one game playoffs does seem antithetical to baseball and it does seem kind of fluky. 
Yeah, super fluky. I think we all know the Nationals are going to lose that game despite the lopsided pitching matchup on paper. What a take. That's a prediction. Yeah, look at that. <laughs> Your first prediction. First prediction of the postseason. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll get back to predictions at the end here, but we wanted to take a second to look back over the regular season and just see what we kind of learned from it. Here's Ben Lindberg discussing the season on the Fangraphs podcast, Effectively Wild. Probably the thing that is most notable about this year is the lopsidedness of the game. And it's really gotten to a greater extent than ever before, at least when you look at the extremes. So I guess 2019 will be the record juiced ball year will also probably be the year of extreme teams. And I don't know that either of those things is actually a good thing. Jeff, is Lindbergh right to call this season lopsided or as he described it, the year of extreme teams? No, I think he's 100% right. It's the first time in history four teams have won 100 games. And you also have five teams that lost more than 90. The Marlins somehow managed to lose 105 games and be the third worst team in baseball. I mean, that's insane. Neil, do you agree that the lopsided nature of baseball right now is bad for the game? Or do you think it made the season less interesting to watch? Yeah, it probably did contribute to there being kind of this paucity of interesting races down the stretch of the season. For the most part, especially the division races, those were locked up super duper early because they were won by these teams that were winning 101, 103, 105 games. Uh, and, you know, it's tough to compete with that. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, I think Maybe it could make for a more exciting postseason in the sense that you now have all of these teams that have sort of accumulated enough talent to win that many games. And I know that, you know, there, there's two sides of the same coin. With all these bad teams, it makes it easier for the really good teams to rack up wins against the bottom feeders. But some of the phenomenon is caused by the bad teams divesting themselves of talent and veterans to kind of deliberately tank those those talented players have to go somewhere and I think they disproportionately went to just a small handful of teams so that now you have these like ridiculously deep top contenders where you look at the lineups for the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Astros and even the Twins we talked about them last week as being kind of a surprising team but if you look at up and down their whole lineup the rotations for these teams too there aren't that many gaping holes, there aren't that many question marks, and there aren't that many easy outs on the hitting side. And so I think that should make these games interesting now that we finally had the cream of the crop, uh, even if we did have to sacrifice the very long regular season to, to kind of get to that point. I will say that there were still a few fun playoff races down the stretch there. I mean, the Indians who... Our model still considers one of the top teams by ELO. You know, they're the sixth team by ELO in our model. They didn't make the playoffs, and they probably should have. They had a pretty high probability, you know, a month to go in the season and then kind of fell apart late. The Cubs fell apart at the end, which was, you know, and those kinds of things still keep it interesting and sort of fun. Any season in which the Mets still have a chance, like with a month to go. I know. What, what is this? What are you just taking pot shots at I'm the Mets? Not let, taking... Can we let the Mets just be? The season's over. I was just not taking these... a pot shot. I was with saying these... that's a good thing. That's a good thing that they were still in it that late. The I Mets, mean, the Mets have a rookie who hit 
more home runs than any rookie in baseball history. They have a Cy Young winner. The fact that they didn't make the playoffs is shocking to that me. That kind of reinforces Sarah's yeah, point. <laughs> it was a very Mets-like way to miss the playoffs. <laughs> but I'm sort of curious about like a team like the Indians. Like, Are we sure the Indians are any good? I mean, they've won 93 games, but you look at the amount of wins they piled up to with Just against, against the, Tigers the Tigers and the Royals and the White Sox. You take away those wins, and they're they're barely a, you know a 500 team. So I'm sort of curious about how good they actually are. Likewise, the Twins. Yeah, listen, but isn't that sort of the overall point that all of these top teams are feasting on the terrible teams? That's going to be the thing when you have these super bad teams. They're the super good teams get to. It's hard to tell whether they're actually super good or and, they're just playing really bad teams. Yeah, and we're not questioning the Yankees' bona fides, even though they hit eight thousand home runs against the Orioles. <laughs> That's true. You know, Glaber Torres alone uh, was enough to beat the Orioles. You know, dozens of times. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, every, I think you could say this about all of the top teams, and if they all have to face roughly the same number of bottom feeders, then. What's the big deal? Cleveland was 18-1 and one against the Tigers. Yeah, the Astros actually did the same thing to the Mariners. They also went 18-1 and one against the, Yeah, it's the first time that's ever happened that two teams have gone, had, had those kind of records against anyone else in the same season. Tanking's effect on the best teams is fascinating to me. I mean, it's just, that's the thing that we don't really think about. We think about it in terms of what the fan base for the tanking teams is going through, but Tanking also means better records for for the teams facing them. So there were some impressive records set this year. Which stood out to you guys, or which ones do you think were particularly indicative of 2019? Oh, the Twins home run record for sure. That is the correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that to me is still the most out of nowhere, the the most just... Like you, you never would have expected it. It still seems not real. Also, just the the way that it synced up with the fact that I think the Yankees' old home run record was broken not just by the Twins and not just by the Yankees themselves, but by several other teams yeah. uh, this season as well. So we were kind of seeing like numbers one through four or one through five on the all time single season home run record list happening just this season, and it's very 2019 baseball for you in a nutshell i also love that they almost lost the record to the yankees in the last weekend like they only barely edged the yankees out for the record they um have 307 home runs which makes no sense to me how this team hit that many home runs four teams would have qualified for breaking the record for most home runs this season i mean that's ludicrous half the teams in the league set their franchise record for homers there's a lot of like craziness going on with the home runs well so pete alonzo you know set the rookie home run record so if we find out yes this was a different ball we already know that the ball was a little bit different but if we find out it was way different and they go back to a previous ball will we think about his record the same way? Excuse me. Why are we talking about Pete here? Jeff and not is so defensive why, yeah. about the Mets right now. <laughs> I'm not. And not the Twins. We're why are going we not to also the talk we about we, the Twins. You just shoehorned Alonzo in here as the straw man for this. None of these records matter. My question <laughs> was going to be, do you still think the record matters? You can say yes. No. I mean, I think, uh, I think it's going to go down a lot like the way we think of what bonds did i mean where it's like yeah he was pretty good 
hit a lot of homers, deserved to hit a lot of homers. But that's if there's like concrete evidence that it was juice, which I, I sort of doubt we'll ever really get. No, I agree with you. I mean, I think there's it is it's going to be a little bit weird because there I would imagine that the ball next year will be different and the home runs will go down and I hope not. Then what? I hope not. Because if you think back that period of time before the super teams, that was also a period of time in which there were like so many no hitters and perfect games Mm -hmm. uh, happening each season. And it was like, okay, baseball is taking forever and it's being kind of boring and they're not even scoring runs and they're not even hitting home runs. Now we have a lot of strikeouts. Sure. But we also have a lot of home runs. I'm much happier with the state of baseball and watching baseball in 2019 than I was in 2012, uh, where it was like, there's a lot of strikeouts and also no home runs. Right. Um, so, you know, if they are controlling and micromanaging the, the, the ball's coefficient of restitution or whatever, whatever the number is that, that determines the ball reacting better off the bat, I hope they keep manufacturing the ball like this, you know, because nothing is going to shut down the inherent trend toward more strikeouts because batters striking out, uh, they have no incentive not to. And they've been told for a long time, especially since the advent of sabermetrics, that strikeouts don't matter on the batting side. It's no different than any other out and that it's worth it to try to hit for power uh, if you strike out every so often. And, you know, you're not seeing the next Tony Gwynn come up. You're seeing, you know, a bunch of guys... Uh, who are focused on hitting home runs in any count doesn't matter the situation uh doesn't matter if they if there's a runner on third with one out i'm putting on my uh old crotchety baseball announcer hat now (laughs) they're still swinging for the fences so you know there's no incentive against batters striking out and then on the pitching side all they care about is velocity and all they care about are guys that have strikeout stuff uh and that is a trend in sort of both directions pointing toward more strikeouts that has been happening for decades if not the entire history of baseball so more strikeouts is inevitable and if we're gonna have more strikeouts at least give me the home runs to go with it that's my hot take (laughs) on the state of baseball i like it i agree too i and i also agree that unlike the steroid era which i granted just made that comparison myself i i don't think it's just the ball i do think it is a confluence of factors you know what neil was talking about with the strikeouts with the approaches and the uppercut swings and all that stuff i I don't think it's just a juiced ball that's causing everything and this gives them the cover to you know in the past when when the steroid era happened they could say like oh bonds was just a bad actor you know he's evil so we should punish him and put asterisks on his record uh but you know now that we've expunged the the game of the tainted records and the and the guys juicing the game is sacrosanct again and we can freely compare statistics from different eras without any kind of adjustment whatsoever which is the delusion that you know baseball fans have had kind of always been under uh i think going into the the steroid era and one of the reasons why they were so upset now with the juiced ball you can't really say like oh pete alonzo he he shouldn't have unfairly reaped benefits from the ball oh well, you're you're playing right. with the ball what's yeah. he supposed to do yeah. you know hit the ball a little softer yeah uh <laughs> you know because because it goes off the because bat of the harder, sanctity of the game but to preserve <laughs> the sanctity of the game yeah so i don't think we're going to see the same backlash because you can't like uh, assign some kind of moral failing to the players that have hit so many home runs this season. Let's go to our favorite thing about the baseball playoffs, our bad predictions. Guys, who do we think Ugh. is going to win the World Series? 
<laughs> I'm going to go. Mine with, were so bad last year. <laughs> I'm going to go with Astros to uh, win the World Series, and uh, I don't want to. I don't want to go chalk and pick the Dodgers, so I'll pick the next most probable NL team, and that's the Atlanta Braves. And it has nothing oh, to do with myself me. being <laughs> a native of Atlanta. <laughs> Well, that's not really fair because I was assuming old Chalky Neal would take Astros Dodgers. They do call me old Chalky. So you have Yankees Dodgers. Take Yankees Dodgers right there on the platter for you, Jeff. I actually was going to say Astros Braves. Oh, my God. I actually do believe in the Braves this year. So I'm going to make the same prediction as Neil. Is that, is that no fun? Should I just mix it up? All right, just Jeff, for then I'll switch sake? to Yankees Dodgers and we'll relive uh, <laughs> Reggie Jackson all over again then. I'll make that my official pick. Okay. Well, I'm going to be a homer and go with the Twins. How can I not? I have to. Twins Braves? Rehash of the 91 series? So that would be my ideal World Series. That would be super fun. I think it'll if it's the I, I think it will be the Twins and the Dodgers. I, I hope it will be the Twins, and I think it'll be the Dodgers. Well, when you pick the Twins, yeah, you're already going off chalk. <laughs> if the Twins just even make it past the Yankees, I think that would be a victory in and of itself, know, given what guys, we talked about last week. This is going to be a tough weekend for me. It's okay. We're here for you, through. Sarah. Yep, <laughs> my team is in the playoffs. I should be happy with that. Are you going to go to any of these games? Oh, absolutely not. I hate going to high stakes sporting events that I care about. Hate it. I'm a very nervous fan. Um, and so I don't take the pressure. Well, I need to be able to walk away, mute the TV. Curl up in a fetal <laughs> position. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard. It's, uh, it's hard to watch uh, even from my couch. So yeah, I'm going to be watching a dark room <laughs> with nobody talking to me. It's going to be good. After an exciting first month of college football, we wanted to check back in and see how the teams and our playoff model are faring. Last time we spoke about college football, a lot of the focus was on Clemson finally claiming a preseason number one ranking, with longtime favorites Alabama right behind at number two. But over the weekend, Clemson squeaked out a one-point win over North Carolina. While both Alabama and Clemson remain undefeated, the new AP poll reordered the top five, moving Clemson down to number two and Alabama up to number one. Danny Cannell of CBS Sports had a hard time with this switch. On his show, Cannell and Bell, he expressed frustration with the new ranking. I can't stand when the poll comes Walker. out. Clemson had a sloppy game, but when did they get beat? I must have missed that. I thought, I thought, they almost got you, beat. I thought if you're supposed to get knocked down, you should have to lose. That's the way I would think. Sorry. What matters on the field and the scoreboard, as you do as a kid, when your other team's talking trash and you say, just look at the scoreboard, that's what I think all that should matter. I don't think I agree. style points but are how that's you should not look a poll. That's not how polls work. No, I think polls are the dumbest thing invented in college sports. And why sports. do you do your poll? Because I have to. It's part of the business. It's so our projections still have Clemson at number one, which I guess would make Danny Cannell happy, but also might infuriate him as our model is based on the polls. Can I just go push back against that? I like the polls. I think it's weird, and I think it's different than all of the other sports. And as someone that used to pour over all the records of you know the polls in, in a given week, I had the college football encyclopedia you know growing up, and I would look at them. I would create fa- all right. I'm going to go full nerd right now. 
I would create fake college football seasons, rolling dice to determine which teams won, and then I would have my own little system of the polls and like which teams would move up. and And it was a cool it's a it's a cool system where it's like okay, we set our preseason poll, and then if a team loses, we bump them down like I don't know six to ten slots or something like that. If they have an impressive win, maybe they move up one, unless the team ahead of them had an impressive win, and then you kind of keep them even, and then you just keep going with that until the season's over. It's actually kind of a, a sensical process if you're trying to kind of maintain a rank order yes it's arbitrary and yes it's based on a bunch of people's opinions and yes the in the something like the coaches poll the coaches don't even fill them out it's like the you know assistant to the uh, lieutenant athletic director uh, at each school wait are you still arguing for the polls <laughs> yes i'm arguing for them because it's fun it's weird it's different you know it's it's not uh in college football you have to do something that's different from just the oh this team had more wins than this other team so you know they make the playoffs or they ha- are higher in the standings because not every team plays the same quality of schedule and so it's it's just one of the quirks of college football that makes it unique from all of the other sports and i like it it's the polls <laughs> we should like the polls here at 538. We're, our whole thing is based on the polls. That's true. <laughs> you don't have to take it so seriously. Like, also, like, who cares? Yeah, literally no know? one cares, uh, especially in the college football playoff era where they have their own official ranking that comes out, what, like a few weeks from now uh, or a month from now. The the AP and coaches poll don't mean anything anymore. So, like, who cares? Now it's just completely for fun and, and for kicks. So, if polls don't mean anything anymore, though, then why do we bother? Why do we need the polls to tell us who we think is good? Why don't we just look at the tradition. records? And, okay, it's college See, football tradition, and the records again are done against different differing sure. levels of schedule. The reason I don't love the polls is that I think they, the preseason polls are nonsense. They're just hot garbage and they're based on more the tradition of the school than anything else and that hurts schools without a ton of tradition I feel like going forward as an iowa state fan listen right now. they the polls do set the opinions of the college football playoff committee not that this obviously matters for my school but i do think there's not really i mean we've seen them kind of fly in the face of the polls and sort of arrange the teams in a way that the polls disagree with. Now, I don't know if that was just to show like, hey, we're not in your pocket, I think AP if, poll. I think if UCF had been ranked number one or number two, they would have made the college Yeah, but playoff. UCF was not one of the best teams in the country. Yeah, well, we agree, that, yeah. but that is not always how the polls work. Sarah, that's a good point. I mean, you're, you're 100% right. Like, for instance, Michigan has no business being ranked right now. I'm sort of shocked that Michigan is ranked. We've beaten Rutgers. Barely beat Army, barely beat Middle Tennessee, got trucked by Wisconsin. Why? And it, you know they're three and one, but they're only ranked because of that it, that leftover right. you know glow from the preseason rankings. Right, right, and that preseason ranking wasn't based on really anything. I mean, look, no, I agree. There's a bias towards the blue blood sort of institutions, but I also think like you know 
they do factor in the roster and, and recruiting and stuff like that. My theory has always been we should wait to have polls until the third or fourth week of the season, until the teams have actually played a little bit and we know a little bit more about them. I will also say, haven't we seen a lot of research, not just in college basketball, where I know this is true, but also in college football, where the preseason poll is actually more predictive of who will win later in the season, like in basketball in the NCAA tournament, but also in, in football. I bet you could do it for, you know, in the conference championships and the bowls. Then the subsequent rankings, because the preseason polls contain information that actually aren't sort of in a weird way tainted by the results of fluky results that can happen during the season. Like every year we see teams rattle off like unexpectedly good seasons in the sample size of 11 games or something like that in in college football. And even over the course of 30 games in basketball that aren't necessarily predictive of how they'll do. And so I think having that baseline sort of baked in as the preseason and then adjusting from there is actually in a weird way, quasi-Bayesian way of ranking teams because you start with your prior and you adjust it. It's like ELO in a weird way where you have these preseason ratings for ELO and then when teams play, you adjust up and down, but you're sort of starting from looking at the previous season, regressing to the mean, accounting for whatever factors you want to kind of add to that. Those ratings have value, you know, in terms of predicting going forward. So, I think you guys are not giving enough credit to the preseason poll as actually talking about a team's talent. I think Sarah is just arguing that there's inherent biases in the preseason poll that you might not see in something like ELO. Like, you know, you always know that Florida State's going to be ranked too high, Notre Dame's going to be ranked too high, and certain programs that are sort of traditional underachievers are going to be maybe not considered. And I think she's right. Thank you, Jeff. I am right. (laughs) So why does our model still have Clemson at number one, Neil? Well, I think it's schedule strength more than anything else. If you look at the other teams, specifically Alabama, that leapfrogged them in this case in the polls this week, our model is not necessarily saying like, you know, who's better right now. Although Alabama is number one in FPI, which is football power index. That's ESPN's uh, kind of ranking of how talented a team is. And then Ohio State is number two and Clemson is number three. Uh, But they're very close to each other in, in that metric talent wise and we're not saying oh well Clemson deserves to be number one on the basis of how good they are but we're giving them the best odds of making the playoff just because they're they're not really going to play that many more tough teams that might you know derail their season they're not going to be playing any tough teams. yeah they're their most <laughs> difficult opponent left in the regular season at least so leading up to the conference championship is wake forest they've already played their toughest opponent texas a&m isn't georgia tech no, it's not Georgia Tech, surprisingly. <laughs> Whereas Alabama still has to play a bunch of teams that could potentially derail their season, not least of which Auburn, LSU. So I think the big difference in schedule strength is what's driving that difference. And and we give Clemson a 73% chance of making the playoff. And Alabama still only has a 46% chance of making the playoff. So our model has Ohio State actually at number two to make the playoffs after Clemson before Alabama. Jeff, what's what's going on with Ohio State? Are they worthy of that spot, do you think? Oh, yeah, I think so. They're very, very good at football. <laughs> what keen analysis. If they played Michigan tomorrow, I would be content if we kept that within four touchdowns. I mean, I look, I think a lot of people were um, expecting them to step back, you know, with a, a transfer quarterback coming in and obviously changing head coach. 
and they just turned around and got better. Their defense looks really solid. I think a lot of people weren't expecting that. They might have the best defensive player in the country in Chase Young, and their corners are really good, and like the fields looks awesome. And this weekend against Michigan State will tell us a lot. I mean, Michigan State is definitely the best defense they've faced this year. Might be the only defense they've faced so far this year. So um, I think we'll learn a lot. So have there been any other surprises so far this season to you guys? Are there any teams you're specifically looking at as we go forward? Well, the team that uh, among the top contending teams that improved its ELO rating the most this season so far is Auburn. They they beat Texas A&M and they're they're looking like, you know, they could – potentially give Alabama trouble in uh, the Iron Bowl. You know, it's nice to always have the Iron Bowl as sort of one of these, like, playoff play-in games almost at at the end of the season. Uh, Wisconsin, you know, the win over Michigan was was really impressive. Yeah, I think those are are some of the teams. And then Georgia— we pegged them. I think you picked them as the national champ going into the season. I wrote about their, um, you know, kind of snake bitten history in trying to get over the hump and actually win the championship for the first time in a long time. That win over Notre Dame is mm-hmm. the signature win of the season, I think, so far. Um, if we're talking about the the top tier teams, uh, but then they have to face Auburn still, and so the SEC is just again this yeah. like nightmare. <laughs> well, I, my favorite team so far this year has been LSU. Now they didn't play this weekend, so they fell in the polls, um, which is maybe Danny Cannell's point, right? <laughs> which is sort of funny. But Joe Burrow, I think, is you know it's really fun to watch. That their win over Texas was great. That was at Texas, which is also not an easy place to play. Um, so yeah, I, I the SEC is going to be a dogfight as always, but fun, I think. It's funny too because we're so used to these LSU winning these like rock fights and and beating teams like fourteen ten, and this team's averaging more than fifty points a game. I mean, it's it's kind of unbelievable what they're doing offensively there. That LSU Alabama game. If everything stays the course, it's going to be epic. And then one more team we should mention is Oklahoma, who has kind of not missed a beat at first, at least, without uh, Kyler Murray. Uh, But the big thing for them is they have the lowest chance among the teams in the top four in our playoff rankings of winning out at only 19%. Again, that's just a fraction of what Clemson has because of schedule. Uh, And so... You know, I think we cannot state enough how much of an advantage it is to not be in one of these conferences that sets you on a collision course with one of the other top contending teams. And it's a real uh, advantage that Clemson has, not to take anything away from them, but being in the ACC is a massive advantage for Clemson, uh, hence the 73% playoff odds. Well, so we'll see what happens the rest of the season uh, if Clemson can actually win out over its weaker ACC competition or someone will surprise them like North Carolina almost did this weekend. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Neil, you want to start us off? Sarah, let's talk about your favorite sport, which is hockey. Wow. The I'm so excited. 2019-2020 NHL season begins Wednesday. Uh, one of the first games is the St. Louis Blues beginning their title defense against the champ from the year before, which was the Washington Capitals. Uh, the Blues, we talked about them at the time. They had one of the all-time Cinderella runs last season. They were in last place around New Year's, and uh, by June, they were hoisting the Stanley Cup. But now it's time to hit the ice again for a new season, and the oddsmakers 
don't really like St. Louis's chances of repeating. So we got some data from the uh, bookmaker sportsbetting.ag and betonline.ag. And according to their preseason odds, the Blues are just 16 to 1 to win the cup, which if you adjust for the, the vigorish and kind of make everyone's odds add up to 100%, that translates to only a 4.5% chance of winning the cup, which puts them equal to or behind eight other teams. They're the defending champs and, and there are eight other teams tied with them or ahead of them. That's a lot of disrespect. We cobbled together the data from those bookmakers since 2010 and found uh, older odds at Hockey Reference going back to 1985 and sort of put them together in one data set. And if you do that, you find that the Blues, with that 4.5% chance, are the defending champ with the lowest odds of defending their title in that whole 35-year span that we looked at. And the team that they surpassed in that regard actually was... The Washington Capitals, who had a 5.1% chance of winning the Cup going into last season, according to the bookmakers, uh, and their repeat bid ended in the first round. They lost to the Carolina Hurricanes. Some of the other disrespected defending champs on the list were some of these fluke-seeming Stanley Cup winners, such as the 2004 Lightning. They won in the last season before the NHL lockout, wiped out the whole 2005 season, so they had to sit on that title defense for an extra year. Uh, the 2012 Kings, who were the eighth and final seed in the Western Conference and ended up going to the finals and beating Jeff's Devils. The 2006 Carolina Hurricanes, that was the first champ after the lockout. Uh, kind of a weird season. They beat the Edmonton Oilers that year. Uh, the 2011 Bruins, the 2016 Penguins, and Jeff's own 1995 New Jersey Devils, uh, they had just come off stunning the Detroit Red Wings with a final sweep uh, and their neutral zone trap was still confusing everyone and people didn't really take them seriously right Jeff at that time that was a good call because they failed to make the playoffs they didn't even make the, the playoffs <laughs> yeah one of the few, one of the rare defending cup champs not to make the playoffs I'm curious you know, like have the odds makers caught up that there's just a lot of parody in this league and that really we shouldn't make anyone a, give anyone short odds yeah they have I mean it's much less likely now for them to give good odds to a defending champ uh, in their repeat bid than they were back in the day. So like the four most likely repeats in this data set all came between 1985 and 1990. And it was like mostly the Gretzky era dynasty Edmonton Oilers. They had a 26% chance of repeating in 1988. And they did, in fact, actually win the cup that year. And the rest of the teams on that list of the most favored defending champs are these like absurdly stacked teams that I remember very fondly. I'm sure you do too, Jeff, and you, Sarah. Oh, yeah. Uh, from the the 90s and the early 2000s, like the, the 1999 Dallas Stars um, who, who won the cup infamously with Brett Hall's uh, skate being in the crease uh, against the Buffalo Sabres. They were very likely considered by the bookmakers at least to repeat in 2000. They almost did. They made the finals and then lost to the Devils. The 98, 99, and 2003 Detroit Red Wings, those were some like incredibly Hall of Famer-laden teams that the bookmakers were like, yeah, that team seems like it might defend. But generally, you really don't see as many of these strong repeat candidates ever since the NHL put in the salary cap in 2005 as part of that lockout which limited teams ability to put together these like mega deep talent collections on one team and that trend has really helped the league with when it comes to parity we talked about this in baseball you know this idea of how much is too much parity 
Maybe the NHL has gone a little too far in that direction. Last season, uh, we talked about this at the time, the top seeds in both conferences lost in the first round, which is the first time that had ever happened. And and weirdly, one of those teams, the Tampa Bay Lightning, who were like had a historically great season, they were the favorites going into the playoffs, they got swept in the first round, and then in these same odds that are that are ranking the Blues so low, the Lightning are the 2020 preseason favorites. It's almost as though the playoffs like didn't even happen, and and the the Blues run never happened. But Neil, I mean, you're a stats guy. Wouldn't you evaluate the Lightning over what they did in 82 games versus what they did in four games? They went 62 and 16. I mean, uh, they they were one of the the great regular. I mean, it really was an unbelievable upset. But I think that's going to rattle odds makers and, and betters, and you know, I think it's going to it's going to change a betting market when that kind of thing happens. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's one of the great things about these odds, especially kind of going back and looking at them in history, is. It does remove you from sort of the, the hot take cycle and, and the, the maybe overheated opinions about teams based on what they did in like a small sample of games, but sort of gives you the long view of people are putting money down on this and they have a really vested interest in kind of getting it right. And it uses the wisdom of the crowds of those types of people that are putting money down on it. And, and so it is illuminating how the odds makers they'll adjust some for a team like the lightning but they're not going to overreact to a first round sweep whereas a lot of the media at the time were just like oh my god this is you know one of the biggest choke jobs in history we can't believe that they failed so utterly uh, you know after that great regular season odds makers are like no nope, they're they're favorites again. One other note on the Blues, though, is that we shouldn't really count them out. I mean, I think the, their odds have probably gone up in the last week. We pulled these numbers two weeks ago when we were kind of looking at it. They pulled off a trade for Justin Falk, who's a former All-Star and just a solid defenseman. If you look at the other teams that were sort of the least likely candidates to repeat in that period since 1985... All of them, except the Blues, lost someone who was like a really key contributor who was worth 10 goals or more above replacement. If you look at a statistic called goals versus threshold, let's not forget that the the odds for the Blues, as low as they are now, as much disrespect as they're kind of getting from the odds makers, they were much lower relatively recently. Uh, back in January, they had a 250 to 1 chance of winning the cup when one lucky blues fan put down $400 on them to win the cup. He ended up winning $100,000 off of that bet that he made in January. So maybe the blues can can defy the odds again and make some other fan rich this season. So you heard it here first. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think that will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and be sure to review and rate the show. It helps other people discover the program. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.